My name is Kent, and I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm excited that you're here with us today to continue looking at what it means for us to have abundant life. And we've just been spending weeks looking at Christ and what He accomplished on the cross, and this is kind of a natural follow-up to that to say, well, because Christ accomplished that, then what difference does it make in our life? How does that shape us? And we're going to look today at one of the most exciting passages about a community that was shaped by God's grace. And it's found in Acts chapter 2, and I'd like to invite you to, look along, uh, to open up your Bible and read along with me on this passage. Acts chapter 2, so we're in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts chapter 2. If you know your Bible at all, you know that Acts 2 is the Pentecost chapter where the Holy Spirit comes down upon the disciples, and they have gone from being this kind of timid, scared bunch that are in hiding to standing before crowds of people proclaiming Christ. And Peter gives what is the first... Christian sermon in the first part of Acts 2, and we're going to look at the last part and see the reaction to that. So Acts chapter 2, starting with verse 37. So after Peter finished preaching, this is what happened, verse 37. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the other apostles, what should we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. And every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people." And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. This is God's word, and it's true, and we can rely on it. Somebody at the block party thought that it would be a good idea if they had a tricycle race down the hill that was in the middle of the neighborhood. And on race day, about 60 Four- and five-year-olds showed up with their tricycles to get into this race. Parents and grandparents lined the street, and as the starter yelled, Go! A sea of young children kind of flowed over the crest of this hill and started down this gentle slope. And they were working it. They pedaled those plastic little pedals like they were in the Tour de France. They were like going for it. They were followed by a mob of parents who were walking along patiently, observing and monitoring to make sure that there would be no mishaps. And it didn't take long as the tricycles began to pull away from the parents, and the parents had to start to jog to keep up. And then everyone noticed that these children were riding their tricycles faster than most preschoolers normally ride their tricycles. And about that moment... 60 peddlers achieved what the elite tricycle riders call maximum leg velocity. (laughs) 
60 racers assumed the V position with their legs stretched out wide, and the tricycles began to scream down the hill. Hands gripped the handlebars, tricycles wobbled, noticeably the angelic faces turned to terror. Tricycles were racing toward the finish line, clipping parked cars, colliding with each other. One little boy made a hard left and went into the curb and then into the bushes. Another little girl closed her eyes, released the handlebars, and then just started to scream. (laughs) Most of the kids surprisingly stayed upright and continued to pick up speed, now with their parents chasing after them at full sprint. (laughs) The crew at the finish line hunched low. They were preparing for impact. As the kids come to the finish line, they scooped up kids with a grunt and held them in their arms. Any kid that was not rescued continued to roll on into the next neighborhood. (laughs) Kids were picked up off the pavement, pulled from beneath cars, gathered up in massive bear hugs. Foreheads were rubbed and kissed and re-rubbed and re-kissed. Scratches and bumps and bruises were triaged. Tears were wiped away. You'll be happy to know this was the last year that the neighborhood had the tricycle race. (laughs) When I was thinking about the abundant life, one of the things that I thought about was velocity. I started to think about life out of control. And I started to think about the pace of life. And I started to think about what Abby was talking about, the things we control and the things we don't control in life. I know that often life is out of control. I know that if I even only just look at my own life and recognize my desires fuel kind of an out-of-control mentality sometimes. I seek to get more and more, sometimes more than I need, sometimes more than what's even good for me. We can get out of control. And And if you don't, agree with me on this, just think for a moment about this question. What is easier for you to control, your bad attitudes or your bad habits? They're both hard to control, aren't they? It seems to me that it's part of being human. It may be even part of our DNA to be marked by out-of-controlness that we have failures and shortcomings, that we, things we want to stop but we can't stop, things that we hoped we could get in control but we can't get in control. And we know what life is, and we know when life is out of control because God has given us a special gift to actually help us understand this. The gift that God gives us to help understand life out of control is called the law. God has given commandments and directions And if you pay careful attention to these commandments and directions, you recognize we don't keep them. We live a life out of control. The law tells us what we ought to do, and as soon as we hear that, we wonder if we ought to. We think of the things we would rather do. We want to continue pursuing our own desires. And if we can maintain control for a little while, it doesn't take long until we lose control again. Um... I think I mentioned this in the past. I started taking yoga um, over a year ago, and Mary and I are now in a yoga class. And one of the kinds of postures we do are 
balance type postures. Is that a whole category of postures? We have a yogi here. And so you do different things to try to like get up. And I'm always quite proud of myself when, you know, I make my thing. But then they say, hold it. And then you start. And it doesn't take long before whatever little control I thought I had, I lose it. Uh, This is my relationship to the law, you know. Whenever I think I can get a grip on something God has told me to do, it doesn't take me long before I realize, you know what, I'm still out of control. The Bible actually describes the impact of the law very bluntly. First it tells us what is right and wrong, and then the law makes us disobey. Did you know that was one of the functions of the law? Romans 7 verse 5, the sinful passions were aroused by the law. As soon as you tell me what I have to do, I want to do something different. And I used to think this was just me, that this little rebel streak in me. But the more I talk to people, the more I hear, this is pretty common. As soon as you're told what you ought to do, you start to wonder if you ought to. And you start to think of a way around it. And I do too. And the consequence of this is also quite blunt, Romans 3.23. Because of this, all have sinned and fall short. That's one of those universal statements in Scripture. All have sinned and fall short. And then Isaiah 64 talks a little more about the consequences. All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all of our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. Out of control. This is life under the law. We are told what is right and true, but the law is actually powerless to produce that in us. It can tell us what's right and wrong, but it can't make us do it. The law is actually counterproductive. It produces the opposite of the thing that it requires of us. And I actually have a picture, which I think is a pretty good illustration of the law. This is a picture of the law. It's true, isn't it? Until I knew the law, I had no idea what I shouldn't do. And as soon as you tell me what I shouldn't do, that's the thing I want to do. The law is like a hill on which we are riding our tricycles. And once we start down this hill, we continue to pick up speed. And you can put signs on the side of the hill that say, slow down. You can stand on the sidewalk and yell, hey, get control of that tricycle. You can do whatever you want. You can put curbs, you can put fences, you can put protective gear on, wear a helmet, wear a knee. None of the things you do can stop you from slow, uh, can keep you from speeding up as you go down that hill. That's life out of control. That's what the law does for us. The law helps us know what's right and wrong, and then it's powerless to stop us from doing it. No law can make us slow down. No law can help us regain control. I get a huge kick out of all the discussion about the traffic cameras. Does anybody else like to follow that? So I'm going to put a camera on this corner, and I'm going to tell you there's a camera on this corner. And I'm going to tell you if you speed through this intersection or run this red light, then this camera is going to take a picture of you, and you're going to get a ticket. And you complain when you get one. This isn't fair. This is the power of the law. We are runaway kids screaming down a hill, out of control, and we need to be rescued from that. And the law will not rescue us. 
And I've been reading a great book on this by a guy named Paul Zoll. It's called Everyday Grace. And this is how he helps us understand this. He says this, In life there are two governing principles that are at war with one another. The first is law, and the second is grace. The law crushes the human spirit. Grace lifts it. The story of the Bible is the story of the perpetual war between law and grace. This is actually the story of our whole life. There's a perpetual battle in each of us between law and grace, and law crushes us. It exposes us, it tells us what's wrong, but it's powerless to help. Grace lifts us. Grace rescues us. Grace scoops us up in His arms when we're racing out of control and holds us close. The law tells us the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth about ourselves. It holds up this mirror revealing what we're really like, but it cannot rescue us. Grace rescues us. This is the perpetual battle that we're in. To solve the problem of our runaway lives, our out-of-control lives, we need grace. This is how Paul Zoll talks about grace. Grace is love that seeks you out when you have nothing to give in return. Grace is love coming at you that has nothing to do with you. Grace is being loved when you are unlovable. The passage that Stuart read from Romans 5 is a beautiful illustration of that kind of love. While we were still sinners, what? Christ died for us. God showed His love. He didn't wait for us to get cleaned up. He didn't wait for us to slow down and get everything under control. He didn't wait for us to get our lives organized and obedient and follow Him. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This shows us God's love. The law crushes us. Grace lifts us. Grace is a gift that then stimulates gratitude and obedience so that we say, man, if I've been lifted that far, if I've been lifted that high out of my sinfulness, if someone loved me when my life was out of control, well, then I'm going to do something about that, which makes grace kind of irrational because you'd think, yeah, you know what? If I said law crushes and grace lifts, you think, well, I'm going to go off and do whatever I want to. I mean, when Paul preached grace, he preached grace so soundly. That was the question people asked. Well, then, should we just go out and sin all the more so that grace could abound? And what's Paul answer? No, never. Grace creates this sense of response that says, I am so grateful for what the giver of grace has done for me, for the one who loved me, for what he has done. He's rescued me from this crushing law and lifted me. So grace then becomes the essence for uh, lasting transformation. It becomes the way that we are changed as people. We're not changed by saying, here, I'm going to give you a checklist. I'm going to give you a bunch of rules. I'm going to give you some laws to follow. That's not what transforms us. That crushes us. We're changed when we say, you know what? Someone loves you no matter what. We actually saw a play last night. What was the name of that? God laugh? Make God laugh? Making God laugh, yeah, at the Amana colonies. And it was kind of, it was funny. It was a lot more serious than I expected from one of their plays. The essence of this story was the power of being loved by somebody. And it transformed a relationship. We know this is true. Love transforms. When we feel ugly or useless or unworthy, 
and somebody compliments us or helps us or speaks a kind word to us, what does that do? That transforms us. When we feel unloved and somebody says, I love you, and they mean it, that transforms. The law crushes, grace lifts us. And this is the grace that actually drives the community that we just read about in Acts chapter 2. If you want to understand, how did this community get to be like this? It's because it was a grace-filled community. They were not driven by law, they were driven by grace. And you get this by looking at the sermon that Peter preached to them at the beginning of Acts 2, if you want to back up and look at that. Peter stands before this crowd and he preaches a grace-filled sermon. In this sermon, there is no moral obligation. There's no checklist. There's no do's and don'ts. There's no principles for a better life. There's no steps to abundance. He doesn't talk to them about becoming more generous or becoming better disciples. None of that is in his sermon. He doesn't give them any law. What he gives them is this picture of what God wants to do in the world. He stands before them and he says, you know what? God has made a promise and God says that he is going to pour out his spirit on this world. And the Spirit's going to have such a dramatic impact, it's going to change our lives. And the sons will prophesy, and your daughters will prophesy, and your old men will have dreams and visions, and this is going to transform the world. And then he goes on to say that there's a time coming when God is going to do this, and the time is now, that God is pouring out His Spirit now. And then Peter goes on to tell them about the way this happened by... Christ coming and living in a, perfect, a life of perfect obedience and going to the cross and dying on the cross and then rising again from the dead. And he announces that um, Jesus, in accomplishing this kind of plan that God laid out for him to accomplish, finished the work that God had to finish. And so now you guys can enter into this. This is the good news. He offers nothing but grace. Jesus is the one for whom death was no match. Jesus was the one who was the Messiah. Jesus is the one who came to rescue. Jesus is the one who opens his arms wide and scoops us up when we're out of control. This is the Jesus he came to announce. Good news. Grace. And those who were listening were cut to the heart. And they said, what should we do? They were transformed by grace. And this is where Acts 2 really goes off the charts. Those who accepted his message that day were baptized, and about 3,000 were added that day. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. And all the believers were together, and they had everything in common. And they sold property and possessions, and they gave to anyone who had need. And every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes, and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. This is the birth of the Christian community. And how was it shaped? Was it shaped by law or by grace? It was shaped by grace. We hardly ever see communities like this today. We, for years, we've been talking within our own congregation of like, well, we aspire to this. How do we become a community like this? Would we become that kind of community by law or by grace? By grace. This community experienced God's grace and responded by offering grace in radical ways. 
They experienced the love of God, and they responded by loving God back and by loving their neighbors in radical ways. The law crushes. Grace abounds. That's how grace lifts us. It abounds. Another great passage. There's so many passages we look at. Just look at Ephesians 1. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption into sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with the pleasure of his goodwill to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he has lavished on us. I love that word, lavished. That's abundant. Abundant living comes from lavish grace. This is a picture of us. We all live lives that were out of control. And no law could have slowed us down. And we go until we crash. And when we crash, what do we need? Do we need someone to come and give us some law? You shouldn't have gone that fast. You should have been under control. Should have paid attention. We need someone to scoop us up in their arms and hold us and to kiss our forehead. This is also a picture of our neighbors. Maybe family members, coworkers, friends, neighbors. Do our neighbors need someone to come say, I told you you should have I told you you should have paid attention. I told you you should have slowed down. I told you you should have got control of your life. Is that what they need from us? A few years ago, I was taking my kids to some carnival in Green Square Park. They were little. And even before we got into Green Square Park, there was somebody there with a little booth about bicycle safety. And this woman was very uh, aggressive in manning her booth. And so as my kids were approaching, she grabbed up these photographs and she held them in the face of my kids. And she said, do you want to end up like this? And they were pictures of kids who had wiped out without helmets. And they were a bloody mess. And my little kids were horrified. And my kids are old now. They still remember this day. And they saw those pictures and they ran right out and got helmets. No, they didn't. They were so horrified, they ran away from the lady. Now, I think there could have been a different outcome if someone at that booth had, you know, cupped the precious angelic faces of my children in their hands and said, you are such a lovely child, and I, uh, I would ever hate to see anything happen to you, and would you think about, you know, the value of protecting your face and your head and all this? I can imagine there might have been a different outcome if there'd been a lot less law at the helmet booth and a little more love. Do our neighbors need somebody to come to them and say, you know, when you get your life under control, then I'll love you. When you slow down, then I'll love you. Will you scrape yourself up off the pavement and walk over here to me? Then I'll love you. Our neighbors need someone to scoop them up in their arms and hold them close. That's what we needed, and we got it. And that's what they need. 
And that's what happened in, in Acts 2. This community needed grace, and they received it. And after they received grace, then they went out and they gave it to their community. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the other apostles, what shall we do? And what they should do is receive grace that results in abundant living. And then share that grace with their neighbors so that they can experience abundant living. Lord God, we come before you today and we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for your spirit who's present here in this room to help us appreciate your love for us and your grace. And yet, God, we recognize all of us that we have on many occasions spent our time out of control. And God, as we prepare to come to your Lord's table this morning, we want to spend a few moments in self-examination, looking into our own hearts to confess those things that maybe would keep us from you, to confess those areas that we have not been able to control. And we don't do that, God, so that we can get our lives all straightened out and cleaned up in order to come, but we do that in order to receive this precious promise that says, when we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So, God, we come before you now to examine our own hearts and to confess to you our shortcomings and seek your forgiveness.